2: Um, we are, I'm joined by Matt and Christy. My name's Ben, by the way.
0: Hello, Ben. If, in case you're new, hey,
2: Ben. you never know. I mean, it's I'm true. assuming that a lot of people are, you know, long time subscribers, but, um, I think, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we're all pastors and it's kind of like, you've got to, you've got to keep your hospitality mind on, mm-hmm. on, you know what I mean? Your hospitality hat. You, you can't just assume that everybody who comes to this church knows what to do. Or knows what the deal is. And so you have to have this sort of uh, consciousness, right? What is the so, deal? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm trying to have this consciousness for you, listener, that if you that's are good. a first-time listener, we're it's great to have you. Yeah. Mm. I'm really thankful that you're here. And my name's Ben, and I'm joined by Matt and Christie. We're the co-hosts of the Gravity Podcast. So, this is
1: what we do. Maybe you found right. us because you've heard about we're doing a series on the Bible. And you're Maybe like, that's it. And you're like, what in the heck is the Bible?
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. I've heard of this. Yeah. So we're in the middle of our series on uh, the Bible. Chris, by the way, Christy, it's great to have you for, for people who have listened for a while. Christy hasn't been on uh, our intros for a couple of weeks just because of uh, travel and a bunch of other things, but it's great to be able to talk to you again. Christy. I know
0: back in, I feel in, like I've missed in you. normal life. Yeah.
2: Here I am back in normal life. Here you are. Um, but yeah, we are in the middle. Well, not in the middle. We're right at the beginning of, um, We've done one episode. This is the second episode of a little series that we're doing from now until probably Christmas mm-hmm. or so mm-hmm. on the Bible. Um, a lot of our listeners are in the same boat that we are in, that we we grew up reading the Bible, interpreting the Bible in a certain way that predominantly doesn't work anymore mm-hmm. um, for the, the life that we have, for the theology, for the experiences that we've had. And there is a challenge, I think, in that um, to say, is the Bible, you know, is it good for anything? (laughs) Or can we continue to read it, you know, in in a way that, um, yeah, that does bring flourishing to our faith and does uh, allow us to hear what God is saying to us. And so I think we would all say that we still believe that um, that's what the scriptures are meant to do. Um, But uh, we need to learn, we learn, we need to learn what the Bible is and isn't and how to read it in a way that allows us to hear what God may be truly wanting to say to us and to the church, uh, rather than maybe through the old lenses, fundamentalist lenses um, that we used to read it through. So I'm I'm excited about this series. We started off with a great interview with Chris Green, and if you didn't listen to that one, I would encourage mm-hmm. you, listener, to go back and listen to it. It's phenomenal. So very paradigm shifting. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, we're excited about that. Yep. Any Any life updates from y'all, though? before we get into this next interview? Mm,
1: no, Chrissy and I were sharing about dreams we've been having and the power of dreams before you jumped on, but yeah. that's maybe yeah. too much to get into here.
2: <laughs> that's a big, <laughs> that th- that's, we could do another series in the new year oh, on Josh. Yeah. So yeah, we
0: need a whole like podcast for that, but uh, no, yeah. we have nine inches of snow outside.
2: That's crazy, Christy.
0: It's the first snow of the season. And it was nine that's inches. That's a lot. That's so much. That's a lot. Are,
1: it is a lot. You know, I watched a Colorado State Air Force football game on Saturday. Oh, because yes. that's what mm-hmm. I do on Saturdays. So you know this, Christy. Um, yep. And I don't know where they Every played, if they played at Air Force or at Colorado State. Either way, it happened in Colorado Springs. Um.
0: Right? Colorado State's in Colorado Springs? No. No. Colorado State is in... Uh, not, it's like an hour and a half Thank away. you, sorry. Air Force is here.
1: Yeah, Air Force is there. Um, I think they played, I, I, don't, I don't know where, but they played in the snow. And I realized I will watch any football game played in the snow. I don't care who's <laughs> playing. I don't care if I, I don't if I even can pronounce the team's names right. I love watching football in the snow. I
2: don't yes. know. Is it the chaos?
1: It's... Again, the games get a little slippery and chaotic. Yeah, it they? could be that. It could just be like,
0: I don't know. I don't know what it is. Wait, but, but do you like the watching them up? in the snow if you were at, like there or just when you're in your house no. like, on the couch? Heck no. I
1: need, I need to be on <laughs> the couch uh, warm. Your slippies? Yeah. No
2: no, 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 no. And your snuggie? Yeah. Is that what they call those big blankets? Yeah, I don't have a snuggie. Yes.
0: Oh, mm. Christmas is coming. <laughs> <laughs> in your onesie um, your, yeah.
2: your PJs. Your onesie PJs. Yeah. I don't, is it nostalgia? You think it could be, like, it, it could be nostalgia. Yeah, yeah there's, That's That's um,
1: I think 89% of the feelings I have inside of my body are due to nostalgia. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's part of, and then, and then the, and then the subsequent envy I have for not having the life right now that can produce those feelings apart from nostalgia.
2: So it's a nice little, um, emotional loop I'm on them.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, this is why we're friends, like Matt.
2: Great, um, a, <laughs> sounds like a great time you're having. Mm. Uh, yeah anyway well uh let's get into our interview uh for today um we talked with melissa flora bixler she's been on the uh, podcast before to talk about um maybe a couple times before i know we've had her on to talk about her book how to have an enemy um and we're talking with her today about uh, her first book i think it was her first book it's an earlier book from how to have an enemy called fire uh actually don't have it in front of me is it fire by night fire in the night Mm -hmm. fire in the night We should, we'll talk about it in the interview. So anyway, Um, but it's all about um, finding God in the Old Testament, which is one of the major challenges that we've heard from listeners. Like, what do I do with these texts that depict Mm -hmm. God commanding genocide? Uh, You know, that's, that's problematic. That's troubling. So anyway, Melissa has some uh, wisdom, I think, to help us out. So. All right. right. Well, should we get into it? Let's do it.
0: Let's do it.
1: (music) Melissa Flora Bixler joins us again on the Gravity Podcast. She's the pastor of Rally Mennonite Church and a graduate of Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. She spends time, she spent time studying in Israel, Palestine, Kenya, and England, and much of her formation took place in the Larch community of Portland, Oregon. Now she prefers the Eno River and her garden in Raleigh, North Carolina. She's the chair of Larch, North Carolina, and a steering committee member and broad-based organizing in her county. She's uh, written in numerous publications, including Christian Century, Sojourners, The Bias, and Anabaptist Vision, and she's written a number of books, including the one we're chatting about today, which is entitled Fire by Night, Finding God in the Pages of the Old Testament. Melissa, welcome back to the podcast.
3: Thanks, Matt. It's good to be here.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, Okay, let's talk about your subtitle, just to kick us off. Why is it so hard to find God in the Old Testament?
3: I I mean it's there's something provocative about finding God in the Old Testament as a subtitle <laughs> because some people think how dare you and some mm. people say um, yeah that's that seems like a real challenge and um, yeah so you know sort of writing in the direction of people who I think do find it a challenge because perhaps because of the remoteness because of the um, the violence the the age some of the pieces that come along with reading an ancient text about um, social norms that are different than our own, and maybe even detestable. Um, All of that is also present in this text.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh, confirming intuitions maybe and impressions that our listeners have. A lot of us grew up in uh, reformational traditions where uh, doctrines of the perspicuity of scripture and the the plain meaning of the text. And, um, you know, we just have to read this and, and then we know what, we know what truth is doesn't comport with our conscience even, or the, or the distance we have culturally, even, even religiously from the writers of these scriptures. So, uh, I I like the subtitle because I think it actually validates a lot of what people feel when they read the Mm -hmm. old Testament.
3: Yeah. Yep. I think that's true.
1: Well, you organize this book around 11 chapters where you discuss um, different characteristics of God, um, and, and some of them are ones we're familiar with, right? God of darkness, or uh, and then some of them are uh, wonderfully evocative, God of, the, uh, of birds, for instance. Um, talk about how this way of organizing your book came to you. Why did you decide to use sort of attributes or characteristics of God?
3: I think it, God gets a bad rap in the Old Testament um, would be be one reason for that. And actually, when I originally pitched this book, I didn't want to include actually any of the stories that typically come into focus for uh, people who are anxious about the Old Testament. I I didn't want to include stories of violence or destruction or war, uh, mostly because I, I felt like that's a that feels to me like ninety percent of the discourse, most of the writings for Christians have to do with the sort of uh cleanup job. you know we have this we have this text and we have to figure out a way to make this work for us um there are complicated, difficult, painful things in the Old Testament and in the New Testament <laughs> mm-hmm. and and also um. I would say over and above, um, far beyond in terms of content, um, pages, stories, chapters, verses is a God who consistently remains faithful to a people in spite of their denial, in spite of their complaining, in spite of their wandering and returns again and again to them in faithfulness. Um, Mm that is actually the core of this entire story. And by a miraculous intervention from God, I get to be a part of that story as a Gentile Christian. Um, and so hmm. I wanted to present a, a vision of God um, as, a, a, as a gift to be received um, rather than sort of a mess that we have to go behind and sort of clean up.
1: yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful way to put that. I think I think you're you're naming um one of the maybe easy pitfalls to fall into where we just get into sort of a character witness for God and clean up sort of all the evidence where maybe God isn't who we want him to be or we thought he was. Um but uh you're, in your writing, you it actually the, the beauty and I think the the depth and the complexity of these stories, they take on um a lot of color. Um I wonder. One of the things about this book that struck me is how much of your uh, life is brought to bear in uh, your relationship to the Old Testament. So you talk about three years that you spent uh, in the Larch community in this book. Um, can you share a bit for those listeners who aren't familiar with Larch, um, just what, what Larch is and, and what about your experience there? Op- what, what, what opened up for you in the scriptures because of your time and work there?
3: Larsh is a community for people with and without intellectual and developmental disabilities who live in intentional community together. And this was a has always been a pretty radically different model than what is available to most people with IDD, uh, which is living in a group home with somewhat anonymous professional staff who come in and out in, on an hourly basis. And... Are not paid well. Usually, don't stay for very long in those roles. Um, and this is this was a, a massive shift in the way that people thought about the dignity and respect and the mutuality of common life um, uh, between people with and without um, disabilities, and how that was lived out in sort of the daily rhythms of life together. And so, I I lived in a large community. Large has been a part of my life for, I thought it was going to be a year. I thought I was going to live at Larsh for a year and I would go off and do something else. And it turns out that this has been a lifelong commitment for me, um, in, in a variety of different ways. Uh, and, and I think that one of the, one of the ways that Larsh opened up scripture to me in new ways is that I was living with people who, who were, kind of scraping the barrel of the most um, neglected people in our society. Um, people who often could not advocate for themselves or relied on others to advocate for them. People were very vulnerable. Um, and I think getting to think about what scripture has to say, living daily um, into relationships of mutuality, um, changes the way that we, we read the Bible. Um, and so getting to learn from people who our world has decided are uh, unable to teach us things, um, but has been a, has been a consistent gift for me.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't help, but uh, as I read the the chapter on Naaman and, and the slave girl, um, I couldn't help but think that, um, you know, it, it never occurred to me to read the story through as with the slave girl being the portal into that story. Um, but maybe um, for those who are familiar with the story in a cursory way, could you just give us some of sort of the, the, the questions you ask and the pictures you paint, um, allowing her voice and her life to bear witness in that text?
3: Is it okay if I look it up first? Of
1: course. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I wrote this book a little while ago. Um,
1: I, what I, I, maybe I can be specific a little yes. bit. Like I remember you talking about um something about the like the skin.
3: Mm. And like
1: the, the scripture talks about her skin and then it talks about his skin or something like that.
3: Yeah. Um yeah, this the the language that we hear, um, and one of my favorite. I'll preface this by saying one of the things I love about the the story of the the enslaved child is the Bible calls her like a, a little little girl, like it's it's yes. almost like repeated yeah. twice, right? Um, a, a, a very little girl, itty just bitty, a right? Little <laughs> little girl, um, and Naaman has to undertake this sort of position of humiliation in order to be healed of this terrible skin disease that he has. And when he emerges out of the water, we read that he emerges with flesh, like a little child.
0: That's like it. a little, mm. little girl. Um,
3: and there is this inner connection that's made consistently um, between Naaman and the little girl. Mm. And, but, but what actually redemption looks like is for his body to actually begin to resemble her body, um, which, is, which is a profound sort of upheaval of sort of what, what we might expect um, from that.
1: Yeah. And, and to me, that mirrored sort of maybe how you narrated L'Arche as being this upheaval of how you treat people with developmental uh, disabilities, right? Rather than uh, paying people $18 an hour to care for them for several weeks. You live with them in an intentional community. Um, And it it seems like, I don't know, it struck me, Melissa, that um, it just would not have occurred to me um, to to notice that and to appreciate that in the way you did. And uh, I felt like that a number of times through the book where I felt like there are points of contact in Melissa's life that give her access to things in the scriptures that I don't have. And I just... Mm -hmm.
2: I just relish that. Yeah. And now a word from a sponsor All right, let's get back into our conversation.
3: What this also reminds me of is something that I think we've also lost in this need to how do you know how do we deal with the tough stories? You know, how do we de- deal with these texts of terror is is that just the paying attention to the details of scripture, there's a lot in there <laughs> that we that we miss <laughs> out on. Um, if we're focused on like how can we get the ethics of this to work out for us, um, yeah. and I mean the I think the best preaching, as I tell preaching students often, is by paying attention to just one word, right? What what one word, one phrase? Um, what of the spirit is, catches your eye as you're carefully reading this text week after week? Um, that's actually where the good stuff is in scripture, not in like, how do we make the ethics work for us?
2: Yeah. Well, related to that, Melissa, I'd love to ask you about, you know, Matt mentioned with this story, you know, of Naaman and the, and the enslaved girl, um, and how you sort of drew connections to your experience with Larch and that kind of thing. And your, your book talks a lot about this, about how life, you know, like our lives and the life of scripture overlap, they interpret each other there's kind of a flow that goes both ways, but I think a lot of our listeners are like me, where I I was taught that the flow is supposed to go only go one way. You know, it's supposed to be we're going to figure out what this text means, we're going to figure out how that applies to us today, and then we're going to like apply it today. So it's God's word comes at us, and then we like it comes out of our lives in that direction. But you you talk a lot about you know kind of moving in the other direction and saying, oh, this is my experiences here at Larch help me understand what might be happening here you know, in a new way. So I wonder how, like, how did you come to read scripture that way? Was that sort of always the way that you did it or was there a, a shift or change for you?
3: I, I had a unique um, for a Christian uh, introduction to the Hebrew scriptures, the old Testament in, and that my, my old Testament teacher in undergrad was trained as a rabbinical scholar. Um, mm-hmm. And so I from I I grew up with, you know, the very basic Bible stories that everybody Excellent. knew, but I did yeah. not know. I didn't go to Christian school as a public school kid. I didn't know any of the any of the details about the Old Testament, just the Noah story whatever, Abraham. Um, and so I got into class, I was really fascinated to read the first 3 quarters of the Bible for the first time. But the yeah. the people who accompanied us were the rabbis. Um, we were yeah. frequently given. Um, we were frequently given access to how the rabbis were thinking about these stories, and thinking about these teachings, trying to make these teachings work for them in a, um, a in a exilic context, right? So all of this is happening, and they disagree with each other mm. <laughs> frequently mm-hmm. and it's not mm-hmm. always resolved um there's a one saying in in the mishnah that the two of the main schools halel and shammai were so at odds with one another that sometimes it was as if there were two torahs um like there were two yeah. different um ob- opposing views that were sometimes resolved sometimes unresolved um mm-hmm. And so for me, as a you know, baby eighteen year old, I, this this just was what I learned um, that this is people are figuring this out when they've got this oven. They've got to decide if it's clean or unclean, and how do we do this mm-hmm. in the land we're in, and what are the different opinions on this? And yeah. and so that just became how I read scripture yeah. too.
2: I think it's a real gift to, to those of us who grew up thinking, you know, reading it very differently where it's like, there's one meaning and it's, you know, it's, you have to figure it out. And, you know, God speaks through this book in a very particular way. And I, I think it's very freeing to sort of realize like, oh, I don't know when we came to invent that idea, but it's not a very new, it's not a very old idea. Right. <laughs> um, and we're, we're actually going to be speaking with um, a rabbi, Danya Ruttenberg. I don't know if you know who she mm-hmm. is, but I'm speaking with her later in this series, uh, just about that very issue of like what do we what do we tend to get wrong as Christians as we read the mm. Hebrew scriptures? So
1: Yeah, maybe that's one of the ways to pivot into something that um Melissa, I'd like I'd like to hear you speak to, and that is some of the ways that Christians have learned how to handle the Old Testament have um I think usually unintentionally led to supersessionist or anti-Semitic readings. Um, where the New Testament is played off as superior or better than the old. Uh, you, have, you have kind of a quasi-Marcion, like there's a, there's a better God awaiting for you in Jesus, right? Um, but even even more subtle forms of supersessionism and anti-Semitism, um, we can read with a maybe a Gentile superiority, we could call it, um, as we appropriate these scriptures. So help us, like how do you think about how do you think about um, receiving scriptures as a Gentile Christian and and yet not falling into harmful interpretations and theologies? So how do we read the Old Testament as Christ followers without erasing or eclipsing Judaism?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: But I'm, I mean, I think one one key piece of this for me is to approach the Old Testament uh, with with respect, um, and and I can give just an example that is like probably my greatest pet peeve from progressive Christians of all time is when this we get this well you know same sex relationships were. Of course, if you're going to quote the Bible, you also don't get to eat shellfish or mix your linen and your flax because that, you know, like those are in the same category as same-sex relationships, and 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 I that's just a profound, profound lack of respect for mm. the Old Testament. Mm. Um, mm. It is a complete misreading. Of why those interpretive rules existed at the time, why people, what, how um, clean and unclean functioned within the the holiness code of this time, and so ju- there are just some very basic things that we can do to stop weaponizing Judaism as the sort of
1: archaic, archaic ancient.
3: violent um retributive yeah. um that we um that all smart thoughtful people reject yes so that's that's just a very basic one that i think we can um engage with and i think we do need to acknowledge that we are in in a complicated relationship to judaism right? and this is um we we make claims about the messiah um, we make claims. We hold on to claims that are repeated in the New Testament of Jews who looked back and saw in the scriptures Jesus, um, and we participate in <laughs> in that tradition. Um, and so, I hold that tension within myself, and as I've talked to other friends, other Jewish friends about this, I I really think that the best thing that we can offer is to be persistently and consistently confronting anti-Semitism in our communities and in our world in material ways. I mean, from the pulpit, for sure. Um, But do you know the synagogue in your community? Do you have a relationship with the rabbis who are around you Do they know that they can call on you if there's an incident that happens? Have you worked to figure out if they feel safe worshiping? Mm -hmm. We cannot um, fix the complication of Jewish-Christian relationships, but we can absolutely stand on the line next to our Jewish siblings and say, "Um, not on my watch.
1: Yeah. I appreciate that exhortation, Melissa. I I feel like Ben and I have been able to meet with uh some of the mosque leaders in our community. Um, but that's been easier because there's one <laughs> and there's a number of synagogues in our community, and I don't think we've been as uh, intentional about that. But as I think about it, um I was seven, eight years ago, I was way more in touch with an anti-Islam bent, but um anti-Semitism has, you know, as it's want to do, come back let's with make, a vengeance. Make it a comeback. Yes, it is. Yeah. I appreciate that. I also appreciate sort of this uh, elitist, kind of snobby, snobbery, a misreading of like a progressive sort of. We uh, we're enlightened now. We know more about this, so we can do away with those things. Um, th- there's a number of phrases or concepts in this book that I think are, um, I don't know, provocative and interesting to me. One of them is this concept that you talk about when you talk about Ruth and Naomi. It's a concept of fugitive ecclesia, which, mm-hmm. which sounds, uh, you know, maybe to some of our listeners a bit like an outreach film for a charismatic youth group. Uh, but. Or like the name of the youth group. Yeah. Fugitive ecclesia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but you better tell us what that means <laughs> and give us a sense. Um, how, how do, how do you, well, yeah, set that up for us if you would.
3: Sure. Well, that's a story about, this is not mine. This is Peter Dula's, but it's a, it's a reimagining of the political theorist Sheldon Wolin talking about fugitive democracies and what i think is helpful about this from what peter develops peter duela develops in his writing around this concept is um that we 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 christians very um typically talk about this need for a consistent line of what the church, the visible church looks like, right? Like we talk about this in terms of apostolic succession. We talk about this in terms of being able to trace the history of the church through time. And what Fugitive Ecclesia offers as an alternative is that the church may not exist <laughs> as, as God's um, living body on earth um, at all. Or it may exist um, sporadically or perhaps not at all in North America, um, perhaps only in other places. But um, instead of looking for this marks that keep the church alive through time, we expect that the Holy Spirit will do God's work among us um, in spite of the the lack of faithfulness of the church. Mm. Um yeah, so that's fugitive ecclesia.
1: Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that because I feel like there's, you know, especially in that story, I think most modern Christian interpreters miss how um, the 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 word Moabitis uh, would have elicited uh, immediate emotional reactions um, to many to many people who were uh, of Israel and the way that. Um, that story functions to like a lot of Israel scriptures to expose and reveal hearts, to call people back into faithfulness and to reveal the character of God. Um, that I think it, we desperately need that prophetic word today. Yeah. <laughs> we need the same thing to happen to us today. Mm-hmm. Um, one one more, maybe, because each chapter I feel like is um, kind of a, a precious gift. You, you talk about, the modern Christian desire to control holiness. And I, I hadn't heard that phrasing before, and I wonder if you could speak a bit to what that is and how we do this and how how reading the Old Testament can form us in a counter way to, you know, eschew that.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think we've, we live in we, we live out ecclesial lives, right, in these spaces of capture, right, where there is a sense of um, wanting to be the agents of what God is up to. Um, and, and so we are surprised when holiness happens someplace else, when, <laughs> when we can't, um, when there's an, there's an escape beyond us. Um, hmm. and, and I, for, I'm part of a religious tradition, the Mennonite church, where there is, um, there is a, I think a greater sense of that being able to happen, um, because there is held within, um, in a baptism, this legacy of holiness getting out, right? And, and the people who want to control holiness being very unhappy about that, murderously unhappy about that. Um, and so to our shame, we still have a hard time when we see that happening in other places um, where somehow there is this, um, you know, I think about that story of um, from the New Testament where Jesus um, is sort of overflowing with this power, right? Like it's like tipping out of him, like flowing over, um, and somebody like snatches it up. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Sorry, I'll say that again so you can edit it. But the part in the New Testament where Jesus is, um, where a woman reaches out to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and he's overflowing with power. Mm -hmm. It's like spilling out of him in a way that feels uncontrollable. and this this is a direct reflection of these stories that happen in the Old Testament, right? Where the ark is so holy that as it tips over, you can touch it, and the holiness is just there, right? It's yeah. over, and it's um, and so how does that? How can that shape our imaginations for um, the unpredictable? Uh, that's that happens around us beyond the boundaries of what we are able to control.
1: Yeah.
0: We'll be right back.
2: The Gravity Podcast is sponsored by the Gravity Formation Course, our 12 month cohort based training in practical spiritual formation, where you'll learn how to notice how God is already at work in your life so you can participate more fully in the life that God shares with us. It is a discipleship process that goes beyond just gaining more knowledge and trying out some new practices. In the Gravity Formation course, we go below the surface of our lives so that we can notice and name our deepest desires in God's presence and to discern how God is at work in those desires to lead us toward holistic flourishing, more transformation, more life, more joy, more love. We've trained hundreds of people from all over the world in this formation framework, and it's helped many people to have a sense of God at work in their lives and learn to be more at home in God's love. If you'd like to learn more, go to gravitycommons.com slash formation.
1: Let's get back to the show. That's one of the um, aspects I think that is hard for us to translate between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, you have people touching the ark and dying. Or people touching the hem of Jesus' robe and being healed. And, And why is there... A difference there. Do you? How do you process that? How do you understand that?
3: I mean, Ananias and Sapphira. They. I mean that. You know that. I. I would say that there actually are not that many. Quite as many differences. Um, those. I think we. We superimpose those in some ways because we do have we do have stories of someone being struck dead right um and I'd be very curious of that if Ananias and Sapphira makes it into the lectionary my my guess is probably that (laughs) one doesn't show up but I might go check after I'm done talking to you um
1: Ben we can't hear you
2: Sorry to make that very awkward. I was just going to say, I'll go check it right now. while okay. will finish answering. <laughs> All <laughs> All right. so. Yeah. So, Let I'm us know what up. you
3: find out. Yeah, I will. Um, yeah, but I mean, this, you know, I i remember, like, I think after I had a better idea of the, of chattel slavery in the United States, rereading that story where Paul heals this little girl who has the spirit of, that allows her to see the future and and she returns this child he returns this child to her slaver and now this child doesn't have any mm. any power any way to make money and I just thought that like, that's i like i' have str- i struggle with that I struggle yeah. with that story um, well, I he, struggle with and that- he
1: heals her because he's annoyed
3: and he's annoyed.
1: Right? <laughs> he's not like move with compassion, or
3: I know, yeah. or like struck by head the spirit of liberation. All the consequences of his actions, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and she's just a byproduct, right, right. of this. Right. I, I struggle with that story. I struggle mm. with it a lot. Um, I think something is wrong. Something is amiss there, um, mm-hmm. and I think it is just as amiss as. Somebody getting zapped for touching the ark as it's teetering over, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah. No, there's nothing le There's no more or less problematic pieces um, for me between the testaments.
1: Yeah, and something a, a common theme that we've uh, been—we're all waiting with bated breath to know if canonizes. Oh, if fire you're wondering,
2: them. it is not. It is not in the <laughs> lectionary. The only, pa- the only passage from Acts five that is in the lectionary is uh, the disciples when they're. The apostles are persecuted, and they come back and tell the religious authorities that they're not going to stop. Not going to stop. That's the only thing. So,
1: one of the okay. themes we've been to- talking about, Melissa, is that the scriptures um, maybe maybe some of the work they're meant to do is to trouble us. Um, mm-hmm. And if if the scriptures are the word of God, uh, then we should expect them not expect them to uh, impact us differently than Jesus, the word of God, impacted the people when He was. Living, I mean, no one was like, uh, some people were like, oh, wow, you're a great teacher. But the longer they listened, the more confused they got, most of them. And then eventually they left, right? Yeah. And so, mm-hmm. it, it, maybe we shouldn't ask for the written scriptures to be any different mm-hmm. and receive the troubling as part of God's activity, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's better than uh, anti-Semitic or Marcian readings, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, maybe as we close, uh, I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear Melissa. Like, first of all, what you're writing now, what what you're interested in now, and two, like pastorally, maybe this would be the first question. Um, to go for, how how do you, how do you pastorally help your congregation read scripture, like? Like, what does that look like? Um, maybe speak a bit about I know the preaching moment is a little uh maybe distinct in your church than other churches, so maybe that would be a part of that
3: mm. I, I, right. I think you know modeling curiosity and being troubled is important for congregations again that this is we're not we're not in the role as preachers to. <laughs> Make excuses for scripture, right? I feel fine telling my congregation that something, something doesn't feel right about this, right? And mm, mm, and we yeah. got to figure out what that means for us as people who who read scripture. Um, I, another another something we've tried over the summer was um, we had n- ten preachers preach the same text all summer. Um,
0: oh wow!
3: Ten preachers preached Genesis one. Um, and they came from a variety of different perspectives from, we had an eco-womanist preach and someone from a more sort of traditional black church background, um, a microbiologist, someone who does housing justice work, um, someone who does environmental justice. And we got 10 sermons, you 10 completely different, non-overlapping sermons (laughs) from 10 weeks, um, and part of that was I, this, this, this that what we're talking about, that um, typically my people would hear Genesis 1 maybe once every three years in yeah. the lectionary. Yeah. Um, but there's there are a thousand sermons that could be preached from this, yes. a thousand different perspectives. And here's just 10 of them. Um, and so that was important for us to be able to bear mm-hmm. witness to that possibility. Again. Because it came out of people's lives, yeah. their lives brought them into attentiveness to different parts of the scripture. Um, yeah, and then the final piece is this um, part of the part of our preaching, the extension of the preaching into within the 16th century was called zoigness, or the testimony, and we don't know a lot about it, but but it it sort of for us it actually is in the place of where the creed would traditionally be said. And, and so after the sermon, it is not the creed that establishes the th- authority of the word, it's the people. And, they ha- and the, the word has to be affirmed by the congregation in order for it to be the word of God among us mm. um, preached and proclaimed. And so we begin that by saying, um, we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit, where do we sense the Holy Spirit moving among us today? Um, and we invite people to speak into into what they've heard.
1: Hmm. Um, I'm infinitely curious about this. Uh, can I ask uh, one of the th- one of the things I often encounter as a pastor is when I open things up to a community, and I we've either explicitly set sort of ground rules or they're um, heavily implied, and we expect people to infer them. Do you have experiences where people come into that space about what the Holy Spirit is doing in a way that transgresses your community, um, or in a way that dishonors somebody else, or isn't keeping with the spirit of your community? And how do you handle that? How, as a leader, I'm, I know you don't want to police. There's no like, you know, recriminations or like penal, you know, uh, punishments. But like, how do you hold that space?
3: I mean, yes, there are. I would say it's not often. Um, we're a small congregation and we've been, we've had this practice, some of us for our whole lifetime. Um, -hmm. others are new to it and listen and, and join in when they, when they have something to share. Um, but there have been times where we've, we've been troubled. Um, and sometimes that requires addressing that immediately. Um, and sometimes it means a longer work and a longer process for the congregation to figure out what what it what is it that we need to say to each other or what is beneath, what is the going on underneath that led to this response um, yeah so both of those are I think realities for us
1: yeah yeah I could think of a number of situations where that's happened to us too <laughs> and I always it always feels like um you know uh, jumping out of a plane without a parachute a bit, uh, to me. Yeah. Um, the book again is fire by night, finding God in the pages of the old Testament. Uh, Melissa, appreciate you being here. Are you, uh, you're, you're an a- accomplished writer. You write a lot. Are, are you publishing? You want to, you want to plug your Substack? I, I know you're, you're publishing there regularly.
3: Yeah. I'm doing some Substack right now. And my main, my main writing project is, as a columnist for Christian Century. And so I show up in Voices every other month there. And that's what I'm doing these days.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for spending some time with us.
2: Yeah. I'll also plug one more thing uh, from you, Melissa, just in case anybody listening to this interview did not hear our previous interview with you about your book, How to Have an Enemy, which is an excellent book. And so uh, listeners, I would encourage you to look up that episode and go out and get that book.
3: All right.
2: Thanks, uh, Melissa. Great to talk with you. Well, it's always nice to talk to Melissa.
1: Yeah, it really is. She's, um, yeah, she's a real deal. I, I uh, sometimes think about her little church there in Raleigh and um, her work with Larsh. I know mm-hmm. she does some uh, abolitionist uh, work. Uh, Some community organizing, some work with women's prison. Um, You know, she's a mom and a a partner, a spouse, and uh, there's just a lot going on in her life. And sometimes I wonder, sometimes
2: I wonder, like, how does does she do it all? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, she was talking about her sick kids uh, before we hit record. So it's like, oh, yeah. It's like people, they've, they've got all these normal things to worry about as well, so... Anyway, yeah and i appreciate I, I think the thing I appreciated most about um uh, her book and that that interview is just um the different perspective that she has because of how she learned how to read the old testament you know um kind of steeped in this rabbinical tradition steeped in uh the ways that you know Jewish people for centuries have read yeah. their their own scriptures um and I think that is a uh it provides a unique that's something i'm you know, recently I'm learning to do, um, rather than read it as a, I don't know, in all the ways that we talked about yeah, the an answer that answer book or whatever. Yeah. Answer book or like, or, or some of the shallow readings, even of like what the old Testament law was doing, you know, all that like, like, uh, vaguely unintentionally <laughs> anti-Semitic mm-hmm. or supersessionist, uh, mm-hmm. readings. Um, it's so all of that. I think that's, that's a real gift, uh, because I, I still feel like I'm, Rewiring my brain a little bit, yeah. To read the Old Testament in a new way,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think there's a way of uh, considering the scriptures that makes us incapable of engaging them the way that they want to be engaged, right? Right. So yeah. we we're not gonna we're not gonna argue against scripture because, gosh, that would be unfaithful. That would be wrong. That would be mm-hmm. blasphemous. Who are you to argue with God, right? But right. then. Um, you know, some of the, some of the rabbinical tradition that she's drawing from is like, of course you're going to argue with scripture. How else are you going to understand it? Right. How else are you going to get to uh, who God is? And you got to wrestle all night. Right. You don't just, you don't just let roll over. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think of, you know, the whole book of Job feels that way to me. Like it, Yeah. like from the perspective of inside the book of Job, Job is basically wrestling with, especially when all his friends come and say, well, you know, uh, surely you must have sinned. Like they have all these reasons why this bad stuff is obviously happening to Job. And they're all like scriptural reasons. You know, you can quote all kinds of, um, you know, promises, you know, blessings and curses. Well, of course this is all, this is the reason this is all happening. Yeah. But Job basically is like arguing with God, you know, through arguing with his friends and saying, I didn't, I don't think I sinned. You know, like I, I I don't know why God's doing this to me. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, that's uh, that's a fun book. Um, it's like an extended argument um, where they're yeah. like, "No, no, no! Here's what God's like. You must have sinned." Job's like, eh, "None of that. That's not. That's not true. I don't know what to make of this, but that's not true." Yeah. Anyway,
1: well, uh, I don't know if I I, I think uh, I think I told you part of the story, Ben. But we got a new car. You did, yeah, congrats. because our our minivan uh, pooped out. Yep. As they uh, but eventually. I uh, the guy at the car store, Carmax told me that uh, we'd be able to fit five people in the car without any problems. Mm -hmm. But I don't think I can find five people without any problems.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Most of the people I know are disqualified.
1: (laughs) How many many people with
2: problems can fit in the car?
1: I'm on the lookout.
2: (laughs) If you don't have any problems, you You will fit. You if will fit in my car. Them. You could be one of five people anyway. So
3: yeah.
2: So. All right. All right. Well, good one. <laughs> good work. So, I'm excited about this series, by the way. Yeah. Uh, listeners. I hope you keep tuning in. Um, we're we're going to talk with, yeah, a lot of great folks coming up. So stay tuned. Yeah. Like, and subscribe, smash that subscribe button. <laughs> I don't think people say that anymore. Do they hit that notification bell? <laughs> All right, you all See you next time. See Peace. Ya. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about it.
0: Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.
1: Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash
2: join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast. And you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com.
0: We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button.
1: You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time.